I've had the privilege to meet some truly kind-hearted people in this line of work, and it seems like each and every one of them possesses a unique story explaining how they ended up in this space. Some transitioned to aging services from other industries, whereas others would say that the industry chose them due to their specific life experiences. Just about everyone in this field has a good story and an even better why. But even in a field full of interesting stories, Greg Bierce's story stands out as incredibly unique. You see, he actually began his career as a pastor before spotting an appealing opportunity to work with seniors. He grew from a senior living administrator to the COO of Episcopal Communities and Services, and he's currently serving as the Chief Regional Officer of Human Good. To top it all off, he's simultaneously a professor at USC Davis School of Gerontology, where he actively teaches the next generation of senior living professionals. Between his active leadership experience and his commitment to guiding the next generation, Greg Bierce was a perfect fit for this podcast. In this episode, Greg Bierce will discuss his transition into aging services, highlight the learning curve he faced, offer advice to newer senior living professionals, and discuss higher level topics like the human good rebranding. Now let's dive into the actual interview. Hi, I'm your host, Brad Alvarez, and welcome back to the Senior Living Concepts Podcast. Today, I'm fortunate enough to have the opportunity to interview one of my former professors, Professor Greg Bierce, who is also the Chief Regional Officer of Human Good, the largest not-for-profit provider of aging services on the West Coast. Thank you for joining, Professor Bierce. Hey, I'm glad to be with you, and I'm glad to participate in your podcast. Thank you very much. So, you know, I've had the opportunity to take courses from you and learn a little bit about your backstory, but I was hoping that you could introduce our listeners to how you entered the aging services industry and how you've blossomed into your role today. Right, and often I uh, will start a class when I'm teaching with uh, that information because it's of great interest to students and people who want to go into aging services management. I think that that's been kind of a a moving uh, process because when I first started most of the providers of aging services management were not-for-profit and they, a lot of them were faith-based or organizationally, organizational-based. And that was how I got into it because I went to graduate school in Berkeley and I came out and I was a young theologue and I went to a faith-based, uh, I, you know, I, I actually uh, was in a church and um, then after doing that, which was kind of boring to me, quite frankly, <laughs> I decided I'd like to get out and do something in the, in the business world. And of course then, a lot of the, uh, like the Catholic, the Methodist, the Baptist, the Presbyterians, and all, the, all these church organizations and lodge organizations had aging services programs or hospitals. You know, they, they owned those, right? And so I told our bishop, I said, well, um, I think I'd like to run one of those hospitals we have. Mm. And he looked at me and he says, yeah, he says, I think that's a good idea. And little did I know that I was essentially establishing my lifelong work. But what I also didn't know was just because you can run a church doesn't mean you can run a hospital. And you know, I know how stupid that sounds today, but for me, as a young person just starting out in life, I thought, hey, I could do anything. Well, what I really learned was that aging services management is probably one of the most complex jobs you can have. I literally 
um, almost lost it in the first six months because I was making decisions uh, in a hospital environment uh, about how, based on how I'd run this church. And so I went back to graduate school and <clears throat> I started, uh, I, I sought out mentors who would help me not make stupid decisions. And that set the stage for me to move through a career. So first I worked in Seattle, Washington as an administrator of a large rehab. And then I worked um, as an executive director in Southern California. And then I worked as another executive director in California. And then I worked as another executive <laughs> director in Southern California. And then went into operations overall and did that now I've done that for 20 years. And when you first entered those different roles as administrator, as an executive director across Seattle and Southern California, you know, you, you touched on the mentors, but how did you manage to learn? Because even today entering this industry, you know, I entered in 2016 and it's been so difficult to try to learn how this business works. I can't imagine how you would even begin that process in, in the 80s or so. Right, and, and so, and what I tell uh, students is you have to get in somewhere and show your competency. And so, um, I, I don't think if a, if a person's graduating like you with your master's degree, you want to go in too low in an organization. But, you, but often students think they should enter right at the top. And I don't think that's a good idea. I think you need to get into a mid-level position and, uh, you know, for some people that's resident services or discharge planner or even sales. And learn from, from that level and just make as many mistakes as you can. I mean, that's how you learn. And you have to go to an organization where they allow you to make mistakes. They understand that you're new, but that once you make that mistake, you learn from it and you build on it. And you build and build and build. And I can... I, can, I can't tell you how many mistakes I made when I first went in. In fact, sometimes today I really cringe. And I think back and I think, why did I ever do that? I would never do it today. But, but that's how you learn. And then I think another interesting thing is I look at a lot of resumes because I hire a lot of people, right? Mm -hmm. And um, when you go to an organization, don't think you're going to spend six months there, then go to the next and do six months, and go to the next and do six months or even a year or even two years. Learn and grow in an organization, grow with it for a while, and then jump. If I look at a resume and a person has jumped every two years for 20 years, all they've done is, all they have is two years of experience. Mm -hmm. I hope this makes sense because they had two years of experience there. It got hot for an issue, they jumped to the next one. There was a hot issue, and so they left, and they did that. What I see is they replicate that process over and over and over. I look for someone who's been somewhere at least three years, if not four, so that you can begin to um, establish yourself in a position, learn what the problems are, maybe make some systemic change in an organization, and then, you know, you, you might say, well, uh, this organization is, is lethargic. There's not a lot of room at the top. People are embedded. Then you make a change. And, but make sure you don't go lateral. Make sure you go a little bit higher. And then grow your profession that way. But you have to kind of, you have to earn your stripes by doing those things. And that, that's what's worked for me. 
By the way, I have another. Uh, do you want me to give another suggestion? Please, yes, I would love to hear one. Every time you get the opportunity to become better educated, do it. And um, for me, that has worked really well. And and I've always looked for organizations that um, not only wanted to allow me to uh, gain further education, but where they were willing to pay for it. And there's no better way to get more education than that. And I suspect I've had employers, I think in some total, I was figuring it up one day, they've spent in excess of $150,000 on my education alone. And that's because you show great value and then they're willing to invest in you. And every time you can get another master's or I guess if you're really uh, motivated, get your PhD or whatever, but keep, keep learning. And when I say keep, keep learning, learn into your 50s and 60s if you want to. And uh, that's what's going to keep you alive and interested and motivated to continue to give back to an employer and to, our, to aging services management in general. And I think that point about continuing to pursue further education couldn't come from a better source. You know, not only being a professor, right. but with your three master's degrees right. coming into this role. I mean, you have the master's degree uh, in divinity from the Graduate Theological Union, uh, master's in gerontology from USC's Davis School of Gerontology, and also an MBA from USC Marshall. And we've touched a little bit on the first two, but I'm, I'm especially curious about the MBA. How has, how has that MBA helped shape your thinking or, or shape, I guess, the way that you approach this industry as an operator? Well, I, that's a good point because I didn't get that MBA till it was later in my life. And one of the things, the great fears I had, most of our aging services management uh, people, where they're, they're thinnest or weakest in their education is um, uh, administration and finance. Um, and I, what I find is that that's probably one of the, the areas that we need the most experience. And I actually went into aging services management with absolutely no understanding about how to run a budget. I mean, the one I did before that was simple. Mm -hmm. And so what I say to students today is I, I tell them, do yourself a favor and take a class in managerial accounting, if nothing else. You don't have to get your MBA, but it looks pretty good on a resume. And it's not that hard to get, at least it wasn't for me. But if you do managerial accounting, you begin to learn um, really what the basics are to building a budget and how, because at some point your employer is going to come if you're a director or a supervisor and they'll put a, a sheet of uh, um, maybe 10 or 12 pages on your desk and say, by the way, you'll probably want to look at this budget. You'll probably want to get ready to draw up the next one. And it would be nice if you actually made budget today. And, and they're going to evaluate you based on that. Well, you know, we're talking about psychology, sociology, anthropology students, uh, social services students going into aging services management. And the last thing they want to do is this. So they're like deer in the headlights when, the, when, the, when their supervisor comes and tells them that. And so you might as well learn it early. And just be able to, you know, reply, oh yeah, I want to have a good operating margin. Do you, do you know how much that would impress someone that you're being interviewed by? Or in our corporation, we talk about net cash production. 
And if I were to come out with that to, to someone um, who was interviewing me, who was already impressed with my credentials, I'd go, wow, I want to hire this person because they're going to make me look really good. Not only will we do good work for older adults, but we'll actually make budget. And we'll understand the importance of occupancy and all of those things. I guess what I'm really getting at is, I'm curious, you know, with so much, you know, so many personnel to manage for someone as an administrator or as a higher level executive, you know, how are you able to distinguish the cream of the crop from everybody else? That's probably one of the most difficult parts of the job because <clears throat> sometimes I, I hear it said that if 50% of the people you hire are good hires, then you're doing well. But in, um, in our corporation in Human Good that I joined in 2015 because they were going through this, this large affiliation, um, they have a process whereby, first of all, they do um, a fair amount of testing to see if a person has a level of uh, intelligence hmm. uh, that, that, that would lend itself to, to, to make it more possible to, to make a good hire. And then in addition to that, we look for people who have been successful before they get to us in, in an environment that's similar to what we, we would be putting them into. And so <clears throat> when you pair those two together, I think we've been fairly successful. I, re more recently, I hired a person for one of our large uh, continuing care life plan communities, and that person um, tested at the highest level of intelligence. But it didn't work out because, you know, there's a sense in which in an organization there has to be some cultural fit as well. And that's one of the more difficult things to really put together. You know, can you work in um, a multi-level organization that's fairly complex like human good? Or are you better suited to work in a single site where you have more control and ability to affect change? And for this person that I had hired, that person needs to be in a smaller self-contained. And I didn't pick up on that. And so um, the person still is good and, and they went up to actually a better position. But everyone needs to know what they, first of all, where, where they're going to do best. You know, they, they need to really look at that and then seek that out. And then it needs to show on the work experience that they've had that that's, that's where they, they do best. But the question you ask, I mean, it is so complex and so deep and there's so much involved. You know, I, I don't know what else I could say about that. No, I understand. I know it's a bit of a tough question, but it's, it's eye-opening just to oh, hear how it's, you even think about it. it, it but it's a good question because it, comes, it gets to the core of what we do um, at the at the highest level of a large organization is to hire good people. The most important thing we do is to hire good people. And as you continue to hire these good people and you know surely encourage them to develop and, and grow and, and to continue to excel at what they do, what skills do you either look for in these personnel when you hire them or what skills do you hope that they continue to develop 
once they enter human good? The most important thing is that they're, they work well with other people. And <clears throat> that's, that's really, the, I mean, that's pretty much at the core. If they can't do that, they, they're not going to survive if, they, if you can't work with people, right? And then, you know, as cascading down, you know, organizational ability, the, the ability to look at and organize and control the, the area that you have control over and to do it in a physically responsible manner. And we've already talked about that. So that would be how I would look at it. But number one is getting along with people. And by the way, it's very interesting that if you were looking at Let's say uh, in our organization, the, uh, the executive director position, right? And so uh, we have a board and a CEO, and then we have the operations, you know, the chief operating officer and the regional officers that, that have responsibility for executive directors. So you have to not only be able to um, control and organize um, your, uh, your, your area of business, but you also have to manage your bosses above you. And you, you know, it takes a unique talent to be able to communicate what your needs and uh, what your successes are so that they can better understand you know, what they need to do to support you. So it's not just to manage everything below you, it's to manage everything above you. And let's say that you're fortunate enough to be this, like the CEO of an organization. If it's a not-for-profit, or actually a for-profit or not-for-profit, you have a board usually. And so maybe it's as thin as managing your board, but you got to manage both ways. It just seems like such a difficult dynamic to try to manage at that level you know, having to keep so many different folks happy with, you know, such different stakes in the business. Oh, yeah, it is. It's very difficult. It's, <laughs> it's not an easy job at all. And that's why I think that they tend to have uh, probably a little higher than normal salaries. But uh, that comes at a price. Since you bring up these sort of higher level decisions, I'd be fascinated to hear your take on the rebranding to human good that took place just a few years ago. You know, what were some of the unexpected challenges that are involved in, in a rebrand like that and in a, a merger? Well, uh, right. So when, when the affiliation took place in uh, early 2016, um, it was said at the outset of that affiliation that they would take a while to work on uh, you know branding they were just going to do the basics of getting our systems in place and and uh, those kinds of things well w once the affiliation occurred our ceo really likes branding and even though it was said that we would get the basics in place ahead of time uh, he launched right into branding as an issue mm. And that was, in, in some ways, kind of surprising to me, although it wasn't because he had been before that with Southern California Presbyterian Homes that became B Group, and he, he worked on branding there. And that was big to him. And he actually did kind of a, a he would go, um, he did kind of like the circuit thing where he was speaking in a lot of places about the importance of branding. And actually, I had him as a speaker 
and some of our um, sessions at USC with Dr. Snyder hmm. talking about the importance of branding. And so, you know, it, it should have been a no-brainer to me that he was going to push in that, in that regard. So once he had established the fact that we needed to rebrand the whole affiliated organization, they started working on that and they were waiting for the big reveal. And we knew that that was coming and knew that it would be an expensive endeavor. I mean, it's millions of dollars to rebrand because you look at everything you have to do. You have to change all the signs. You have to letterhead, uh, name tags. Uh, in, in our case, 18 CCRCs with thousands of people. And everyone has an opinion on what a good rebranding would be or what a good new name would be. And it was amazing that when they, um, the, the big reveal was done, first meeting with his board and then with top management and so on, every time he said, the name that we have chosen is human good, it always had an immediate liking. Everyone seemed mm. to like that because it was so high. I mean, it was, it, it's something that you could always aspire to be because who thinks they would ever attain being totally human good? But it's always something you could work toward. And, um, and it, it's not too hard actually to understand that because you could, you, it's easier to explain than B group. What is B group? But human good was, was, was not so hard. So um, I think we've embraced it. Uh, we, it's on all of our, I mean, we're talking all of our transportation, all of our buses have the logo, uh, all of our, you know, our business cards. And every once in a while you look around, you still got the old brand somewhere, and the old Abhow or B Group, and you, and you see it, and it's insidious. But you consciously work toward, you know, washing all of that out and embracing human good and um, it's 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 beginning to to right the ship. Yeah, it certainly seems like quite the logistical challenge, but obviously a, a very worthwhile one. I think so. I think so. And it, it, it takes everyone who had those old alliances. And by the way, this is another interesting thing. I, I know you didn't ask the question, but one of the, the hardest things you can do is change culture. And before the affiliation, it was said that really these two organizations would be great because they, they, their, their missions were similar and their cultures were similar. And they went through all the list of things where geographically it fit because they, they weren't really competing in any of the geographic markets or anything like that. But when everything was said and done, culture is so unique to each one and you really don't understand how that works out in an affiliation process. And there, there, were, there were cultural issues that they had to deal with. And you know, um, a number of people just decided they didn't want to deal with that, uh, that, that cultural change and didn't stay with the organization. But uh, for those who have, and, and many did, um, it's been really a pretty enjoyable process, and it's kind of like being part of, of the birth of a new um, of a new child or, an, or a new organization, and being a part of that and helping to make it the best it can be, and to grow it. How do you how do you manage to successfully implement a new culture under those circumstances? 
Well, I think you have to be persistent, and um, it probably, although I'd like to say it comes from the bottom up, it's really from the top down, hmm. and you, you look at every way you can to um, encourage the new branding and a culture that everyone agrees to and embraces. And you know, it's one thing to give lip service to that, and it's another thing to actually do it and live it. And so I really think the people um, from the board to our CEO and to our operations uh, officers and uh, to our executive directors, they all need to walk the walk. And if they aren't going to walk the walk, then everyone below that says, well, if that person doesn't do it, why do I have to do it? And it's it, it may seem like a, a no-brainer, but um, when you, and when you see that that's not happening, you need to call it out and be willing to say, you know, is that really consistent with the culture that we want to encourage? And what would you have done differently if you were really trying to live, that, live out that culture in that situation? And let them think about it. And if they aren't articulating that, then you've got a problem. Absolutely. And, and thank you again for sharing your wisdom uh, on that point. Oh, sure. I do have one final question, which is, is there any sort of parting advice that you would like to give to the next generation of senior living professionals as they embark on this journey? Hmm. Yeah, I've been uh, asked that a number of times. And um, I know that this is difficult the way people, uh, younger uh, people look at work today. But my advice is to follow the job opportunities, at least until you get to where you want to be. And it may mean that you have to, you know, we were talking before the interview this morning, you travel mm -hmm. and you have to go places, and you have to do things. And if you really want to uh, grow in aging services management at the highest levels, you need to be willing to make changes in life. And you just need to decide whether you want to do that or not. And I, don't, I would not have been, I, got, I would never have gotten to where I am today if I hadn't been willing to make those changes and accept a lot of challenges. You know, some, some of us are challenge averse and we're change averse. But really challenge and change is so basic in what we do that um, you have to be the kind of person that is comfortable with that. And if you always want things to be the same, then don't go into aging services management. That's fantastic parting advice for our audience. Thank you again, Professor Beers, for being so generous with your time. Well, thank you. Thank you for inviting me. And I, I, I'm really um, privileged to be a part of your podcast. Mm -hmm.